you would, follow along as I read Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that Gentiles are fellow heirs and members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. If you would pray with me this morning, dear Heavenly Father, God, Lord, we thank you, God, for your grace and mercy, Lord, that has been poured out not just on the Jews, Lord, but on the nations, God. As we read this portion of scripture, Lord, I'm reminded that I am not a Jew, Lord, that I am a Gentile, And I would have been lost, Lord, if the gospel didn't come to my family, to my people group, to to the nations, Lord. And, Lord, we thank you for that. I pray, Lord, that you're with us this morning as we go over this passage, that we understand, Lord, uh, your revelation, Lord, how you've revealed truth to us gently and patiently and, and slowly, Lord, how you've inspired men, Lord, the apostles, to write the the New Testament, God, revealing truths that we would not have known unless you have revealed them, Lord. I just pray that you're with us this morning as we go over this passage in your son's name. Amen. Have you ever been told something that just is so unbelievable that you needed evidence to believe it? Something that you just couldn't believe unless you knew it came from a reliable source? So actually, I was thinking through this passage as I was studying it and thinking through this idea of needing to know um, uh, the source for, for things that were hard to believe in. And I was thinking of 9-11 when I first heard about that happening. Um, 9-11 happened actually in my senior year of high school. And I was on my way to, to school, to THS, and I stopped by the donut shop. It was not unusual for me in that time. Um, and that morning, it just was really crowded. We were all in there in line getting donuts, and a man came running by and opened the door and just yelled, they're bombing the trade centers, they're bombing New York, and shut the door and ran off. And I remember there was about a second that we were quiet, and then all of us in that room just started laughing together. It was just too unbelievable, and the guy just seemed crazy. Then... Of course, I drive to school, and when I got there, one of my closest friends came up and asked me, hey, hey, have you heard about New York? And I was like, yeah, some crazy guy was talking about being bombed or something like that, and it hit me right then. Wait a second. Really, to be honest, I still had a hard time believing it, and it wasn't until I saw it on TV that, that I believed it. And it's just because 9-11 was just such a radical thing. And couldn't believe it unless it came from a reliable source, and honestly, unless I saw it with my own eyes. And what's interesting is I believe this is what's going on in our passage this morning. Paul just taught in Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, which I really believe is the heart of the, the letter of, um, to, the, to the church in Ephesus, such a radical teaching that would have been radical in the first century that Paul wanted the church to know. He took time to let the church know that this came from a reliable source. 
Ephesians 2, 11 through 22 may not seem so radical to us that Jews and Gentiles are one in Christ, that they are one body, that they are one man, that they are one family, one kingdom, one new temple. It might not be that radical to us, but you've got to remember as I preached this morning that this truth has been taught to the church for over 2,000 years. In the first century, this was a radical teaching. And Paul wanted the reader to know that he did not make this up. He didn't come up with this. This was direct revelation from God. You know what's interesting is the other apostles do something very similar, a a few of them. Um, If you would, turn to 2 Peter uh, 1, verse 16. 2 Peter 1, verse 16. Because Peter, who wrote, obviously, 2 Peter, does something very similar to what Paul does in the passage that we're going to be going over today. I just want you to see it. Hopefully this gives you some more um, trustworthiness in, in Scripture. It says this in Second Peter 1.16, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. In other words, Peter wants the people that he's writing to, he wants us to know that that he didn't make this up. He was an eyewitness. Eyewitness of Jesus' majesty. And look at verse 17. For when he, that's Jesus, when, when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to, to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, whom I am well pleased Peter here is talking about the Mount of Transfiguration. When Jesus took the inner three, Peter, James, and John, up to a mountain and he displayed his glory to them. And when he did that, a voice came from heaven saying, This is my son, my beloved son, whom I am well pleased. Peter is saying, I was there. I was there. I just think about that, the voice of God from heaven saying, this is my beloved son who I am well pleased. Peter was terrified, of course, if you look at that passage. But look at verse 18, he says this, We ourselves heard this voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word, this is amazing, and we have the prophetic word more firmly confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the dawn or the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture, that's the Bible, no prophecy of Scripture comes by, from someone's own interpretation. In other words, this didn't come from man. Scripture. God is the author of Scripture. Look at verse 21. says, For no Prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This passage, actually, that one verse gives us great insight to the doctrine of revelation. Men spoke, or men wrote, right? Men wrote, or men spoke, and and, and so much so that you even see their own personalities come out in Scripture. Peter, Paul, and John all write completely different than each other. Right? Peter was, um, or Paul was very educated, and so he writes very sophisticatedly. John, on the other hand, was not educated, and his Greek is very simple. Yet, 
they were all carried along by the Holy Spirit. In other words, they wrote exactly what the Holy Spirit wanted them to write. Therefore, God is the ultimate author of Scripture. Peter is saying, we didn't make this up. We were eyewitnesses. This came from God. In fact, John says something very similar too. If you would, turn to 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. We recently went through 1 John, and we went over this passage pretty in-depthly. Let me just read it again to you. 1 John 1, 1 says this, That which was from the beginning, that's Jesus, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands. John's saying, hey, we apostles saw Jesus. We heard him. We touched him. Concerning the word of life, verse 2, the life was made manifest. That word means revealed. Jesus was revealed to us, the apostles, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaim it to you, the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. In other words, we didn't make this up so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we, apostles, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Now turn back to Ephesians 3, verse 1. The reason I go over those two passages is because I believe what Peter did and what, and what John did in those two passages that we've gone over, Paul is actually doing something very similar. The, the truth that Jews and Gentiles are one body, Paul is going to say, I didn't make this up. It was revealed by God to me. This truth, which Paul calls a mystery throughout this passage, is from God, in other words. There's two points I'd like to go over in today's sermon. And two points are this, the mystery revealed to Paul. And the second point is the mystery revealed to the apostles and New Testament prophets. The mystery revealed to Paul and the mystery revealed to the apostles and New Testament prophets. Let me start with the mystery revealed to Paul. Look at Ephesians 3 verse 1. It says this, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. For this reason, that word that's translated for this reason points back to the previous passage, obviously. Ephesians two eleven through 22, a truth that was really hard to believe in the first century. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Right, we spent a whole sermon on this one verse. Paul was in prison for preaching to the Gentiles planting churches all over the known world, the Roman Empire, for telling Gentiles that they didn't have to become Jews to be saved. All they had to do is repent and believe in Jesus Christ, to have faith in Jesus. Look at verse 1 again. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Assuming that you have heard, in Greek, it's a first, this is a first class conditional clause, which just means that Paul is assuming this to be true. In other words, it could be translated, as I'm sure you have already heard. Remember, Paul founded this church and he's been a pastor of it for years. It's been a while since he's been there. He's assuming that they knew the stewardship of God's grace that was given to him for them. 
Paul was given a specific ministry to take the gospel to the Gentiles. He's often called throughout scripture the apostle to the Gentiles. Interesting, Paul calls this a stewardship. It's an interesting word to use, a stewardship of God's grace. In Greek is um, oikonomai, oikonomai, which means an administrator. This word primarily refers to the management of a household business or other concerns on behalf of someone else. A, a steward was responsible for taking care of someone, someone's belongs, or something that belonged to someone else. He supervised such things as buying, selling, bookkeeping, um, planning, harvesting, storing, the preparation of meals, the uh, assignment of duties of slaves, whatever else was needed to be done. Paul called his calling a steward. He called himself a steward of God's grace. Stewardship was given to him. Right? He was God's chosen instrument. That's what Acts 9.15 says. Paul was actually on his way to persecute Christians. We just went over this. When Paul was knocked off his horse, was saved by God's grace, and was given his ministry to take the gospel to the Gentiles, to the nations. Paul saw this as a stewardship. A stewardship of his ministry. And he tells the church, I... I'm sure you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you and how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. Again, this mystery, as I said earlier, is that Jews and Gentiles would be one body, one body in Christ. And Paul briefly wrote about this in Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. This mystery was revealed to Paul. Why does he use that word mystery? Why does he call this a mystery? Well, what is a mystery? There's two ways I use the word mystery, and I think the church uses the word mystery. A mystery is something we just don't know. This is the first way. We just don't know because God hasn't revealed it to us. It's a mystery, right? And it's probably how most of us use this word. It's Deuteronomy 29, 29, which is quoted a lot from this uh, pulpit here. It's the secret things belong to the Lord, our God. There's mysteries in scripture. I know we know that, right? The logic behind the Trinity is a mystery. The Bible clearly says that, that the Father is God, that Jesus is God, and the Holy Spirit is God, and yet it also says there is only one God. How does that work? I, I don't know. <laughs> it's a mystery. Or that God is completely 100% sovereign and man is responsible. And the Bible is clear that God is sovereign over everything, even man's choices. Yet the Bible is also clear that man is responsible for his choices and his choices matter. How do those two things go together? I, I don't know. It's a mystery. Or that Jesus is fully human and fully God. 100% man and 100% God, which that doesn't make sense. <laughs> It's a mystery. It's how most of us use this word mystery. But there's another way the word mystery is used in Scripture. A mystery is something that was hidden in the Old Testament that now is revealed to us by God in the New Testament. And to be honest, this is how most of the New Testament authors use this word. When they use the word mystery, they're talking about something that was hidden in the Old Testament but has been revealed in the New Testament uh, Colossians 1.26 says this, The mystery hidden for ages and generations, that's the Old Testament, but now revealed to his saints. It's revealed to us as New Testament saints. Or look at Ephesians 3 verse 5, which was not made known 
to the sons of men in, in other generations. That's the Old Testament. As it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery was not known in the Old Testament, but it has been revealed to the apostles and New Testament prophets, in other words. Look at verse 3. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation. This mystery was made known to Paul. It's made known to Paul. What was this mystery? Well, verse 6 tells us. Look at verse 6. It says this, this. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That verse is just restating Ephesians two eleven through 22. And again, I believe that's the heart of this letter. That the Jews and Gentiles are one. That the church is one body. Unified. You might be thinking, isn't that in the Old Testament? I say you might be thinking that because that's what I was thinking when I was reading through this. How is this a mystery in the Old Testament? Doesn't God say in the Old Testament that he has a heart for the nations, for, for the Gentiles? Doesn't he promise that Gentiles would be saved? And the answer is yes, over and over and over and over again. And I hope you have seen that. The Old Testament clearly reveals that God has a heart for the nations. Has a heart for the nations. It's throughout scripture. It's not just a New Testament thing. He desires to bless all the nations. That's why he called Abraham in the first place. He became Israel. That he would be a blessing to all families, to all nations. God's heart was for the nations, Old and New Testament. But listen, that's not the mystery that's talked about in Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. The mystery is that Jews and Gentiles, anyone that has put their faith in, in Christ, would become one body become one new man, become one temple, one family. That was a radical teaching in the first century. That's why Paul felt the need to say, I didn't make this up. I didn't make this up. It came from God. Look at verse 4. When you read this, this letter was meant to be passed to to Ephesus and probably passed to many churches in Asia Minor at that time and it was, it was to be read out loud in front of the church and so he writes when you read this as it's being read out loud when you read this you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ again this mystery is that Jew and Gentile are one body through Christ's death and resurrection God revealed this mystery to Paul but not just Paul Paul wasn't the only one that that this was revealed to. This brings me to my second point this morning. The mystery revealed to the apostles and New Testament prophets. The apostles and New Testament prophets. Look at verse 5. The mystery of Christ, verse 5, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery was not made known to the sons of men in other generations. In other words, the Old Testament, the generations before the New Testament. It has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. In other words, it's been revealed to the the apostles and New Testament prophets. Again, God raised up New Testament prophets in the first century because there was no, no, no New Testament scripture. 
there's churches that were getting planted all over um, the Roman Empire, and God raised up prophets in the first century to speak authoritatively to the church, revelation to the church, and the apostles as they were writing scripture. It was revealed to the apostles and New Testament prophets. And when I went over this passage, it's kind of just how I think. If you ask questions, it's a good thing, I think, when you're going through Scripture. If you do it in a reverent way and not a skeptical way, but just ask questions. And one of the things I just was wondering, and I didn't think this was a question that was going to bring me anywhere, but how did God reveal this to the New Testament prophets and apostles? Ever, like, wondered that? Did an angel come down and tell them? Did they have a vision of some sort? Did they just have the knowledge pop in their head and they started writing? I was just wondering this. I was sitting in my office as I was reading this, wondering this, and asked myself, I wonder how God did this. It would be interesting and neat to, to know how God revealed this truth to the, the apostles. Then it hit me, he did reveal it to us. It's the book of Acts. The first half of the book of Acts is God slowly sh- revealing, showing that the gospel is for the nations, not just Jerusalem, not just Israel. The whole first part, first half of Acts. And the second half of Acts is the gospel going to the nations. In fact, if you would, turn with me to Acts 1, verse 6. And I know we've been in Acts a lot through this portion of Scripture, but I think they go together. In this portion of Scripture, it's all about the Gentiles being one with the Jews. And that's one of the major themes in the book of Acts. The gospel going to the Gentiles. The gospel going to, to the nations. Acts 1 6. Look at what it says. It says, So when they had come together, that's the apostles and then the disciples too, when they have come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Again, their minds still just focused on Israel. Verse 7. He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That's the outline of Acts right there. Verse 8 is the outline of Acts. This is like the thesis statement of the whole book of Acts. Luke writes it out right there for you. The gospel going to first Jerusalem, then the gospel going to Judea and Samaria, And then the gospel going to the ends of the earth, to the Gentiles, to the nations. Jesus clearly taught the apostles. That's one of the ways he revealed this truth to them. He just taught it to them that the gospel is to go to the nations, to the ends of the earth, to, to the Gentiles. But you learn really quickly in the book of Acts, the apostles didn't get it. (laughs) They didn't get it. So God graciously and slowly reveals this truth to them. That's the whole first half of Acts. God slowly revealing this truth to them. In fact, if you would look at Acts 2 verse 1. Acts 2 verse 1. It says this, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. This is the apostles and the disciples. Right, the, the now 12, it went to 11, and they added one. So 12 apostles, they were all together in one place, waiting for the Spirit, trying to be obedient to Jesus. 
It's important, this was the day of Pentecost. Pentecost was a festival, it was a holiday, but it was a traveling holiday. It was a traveling festival. Meaning Jews from all over the known world at this time would have traveled to Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost. So there's Jews from all over the known world at that point. Verse 2, it says this, And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterances. The Greek word for tongues is glosa or glose which means just language. It literally means tongue, but the the idea, the nuance of that word means language, and it could be translated very fairly language. And and so let me just read it that way. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them utterances. Verse 5, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devoted men from every nation under under heaven, Again, it's Pentecost. It's a traveling holiday. There's Jews from from all over the known world at that point. Verse 6, And at the sound of the multitude, um, or at, and at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speaking in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these, these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each, each of us in his own native language? In other words, let me just paint what's going on. There's Jews from all over the world. That means there's Jews that spoke all different languages there. And they were hearing Peter and the, the apostles as they were preaching. And they were all hearing them in their own language. This was a miracle. Be like me getting up here and speaking and preaching and having people from, from all over that didn't speak English. And they're all hearing in their own language. It's clear this is a miracle. Tongues was a miraculous sign. Peter was speaking one language, and the Jews all over the world, from different languages, heard him. In fact, verse 9 and 10 lists all the different languages, Jews from everywhere, all over the Roman Empire, all over the known world. But look at verse 11. It says this, both Jews and proselytes and Cretans and Arabians, and we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. That's the gospel. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? It's a question, what does this mean? What does it mean that they're speaking these different languages? Here's the amazing thing about Acts 2 I think most people miss, the significance of this event. At Pentecost, the the church was birthed as the Spirit came into those who believed. And the first time ever the gospel message was preached by the church, it was preached not in Hebrew. It was preached in all languages. All languages. God was showing the apostles, he was showing the church, and he was showing us that the gospel is for everyone. Every language. Not just the Jews. This just fits with the theme of all of scripture. And it all ends in Revelation when when every tongue and every tribe will be worshiping God together. The church was to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And listen, they didn't. They didn't. At Pentecost, Jews, think about this, Jews from every nation 
were there, and, and, and a lot of them, if not all of them that were, were heard, it says 3,000 of them were saved from every nation. These Jews should have gone back to their homes and shared about Jesus to their Gentile neighbors. But they didn't. They all stayed in Jerusalem. We learn that the church grows 3,000, then it says 5,000, and then it just gets to an unnumberable amount. It's just a massive church. We learn that the church is loving and faithful and giving, dedicated to fellowship, dedicated to prayer, dedicated to scripture. Also evangelistic church. It evangelized all of Jerusalem. It even says the, the, the non-believers respected them. But it was a disobedient church. It was a church that didn't take the Great Commission seriously. It was a church that didn't take missions seriously. They stayed in Jerusalem when Jesus clearly told them to go. In Acts 1.8, it says, But when you receive power, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, it starts there. In Judea and Samaria, you're, you're going to go there and to the ends of the earth. We're still going there. In fact, Matthew twenty-eight nineteen says, Go. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, not just Jerusalem. Not just the Jews. Jesus told the apostles, Go to the nations, the Gentile nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But they didn't go. They stayed. And since they wouldn't leave Jerusalem, God ordained persecution to spread them. Say, you don't want to go? You're going. (laughs) You're going. In fact, turn to Acts 8. Turn to Acts 8. We know Acts 7, I hope, um, this is the death, the martyrdom of Stephen. And Acts 8 verse 1 says this, And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria. You don't want to go to Judea and Samaria? You're going. Except the apostles, devoted men, buried Stephen, and made great lamentations over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Find out in chapter 8 that many Samaritans were saved. And the apostles, it's amazing, the apostles were eyewitnesses of the salvation. Why? God was slowly showing them. He was slowly revealing to them that the gospel is to go to the nations. He told them that, but they couldn't hear it because of their prejudice. So he was showing it. He was revealing to it that the gospel is to go to the nation, to the Gentiles. He went in Acts, the book of Acts, the apostles and the church as a whole really had a hard time with this. They had a hard time with this. Their cultural hatred toward the Gentiles just kept getting in their way. It kept getting in their way. In fact, turn to Acts eleven nineteen. We've gone over this before, but Acts eleven nineteen. I just want you to see this in the the story of Acts. Acts eleven nineteen says this. 
Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, right? That's chapter 8. There's Stephen died and then and Saul was ravaging the church and, and the church got scattered to Samaria. But not just Samaria. Look what it says. Traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. This is all over the known world. Look what it says. Speaking the word, speaking the gospel to no one except Jews. So they got spread and they still didn't get it. They get to the Gentiles and these Gentile nations and they look at Gentiles and say, you're too lost. You're too evil. You're too unclean. Where's a Jew so I can share a gospel with them? That's ugly, right? It's ugly. You know what's sad about that? I actually see this in the church today. People asking, why are we sending missionaries to the Muslims? Isn't there plenty of people in the U.S. that need the gospel? Those countries are just too dangerous. Why are you sending these young couples and young families to the Muslims? They're just too far lost. Listen, that's our commission as a church. It's to reach the nations no matter what the cost. To cross cultural boundaries with the hope of Christ because there is no hope in these nations. In fact, turn to Acts 11 now, verse 1. Just look at verse 1 in Acts 11. It says this, Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. In other words, the the apostles, it's important they understand, the apostles and and Jewish Christians were together. and, And they heard that the gospel had spread past Jerusalem. The gospel not only has spread past Jerusalem, it's spread past Samaria at this point. And the Gentiles were receiving the word of God, receiving the gospel. You would think the church would just be rejoicing. But look at their response, verse 2. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised party, that's the Jewish Christians, criticized him, saying, you went to the uncircumcised men and ate with them. All they can think of is that you ate with a Gentile. The Jews didn't eat with Gentiles. They were considered unclean. Look at verse 4. This is what Peter says. And I know we've gone over this, but look at verse 4. But Peter began and explained um, it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me, Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or clean has ever entered my mouth. In other words, you've got to understand what's going on here. The sheet is coming down, and on the sheet, it's all type of unclean animals. Animals that the Jews, by the Old Testament law, weren't supposed to eat. And God says, Take and eat. And Peter says, Those are unclean. Look what God says in verse 9. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. I hope you understand this is really not about the animals. I hope you also understand that we're all Gentiles. We're not Gentiles in the sense that we're saved by grace and that we're in the kingdom of God. But our heritage is not Jewish for most of us, if not all of us. 
these passages should be special to us. We're not unclean, God says. Take the gospel to them. That's what he's saying here. I mean, we are unclean because we're sinners, but, but the gospel comes and saves us and cleanses us. Look at verse 10. This happened three times, and all was drawn up into heaven. And behold, at the very moment three men arrived at the house in which we were sent to me from Caesarea, and the Spirit told me to go with them. They're Gentiles. Go with these Gentiles. Making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. This is why we entered his house. The man was Cornelius, a Gentile. Verse 13, and he told us he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. It's amazing to think, while Peter is having this dream of the sheet coming down and God saying, this is not unclean anymore. Don't call it common. A Gentile named Cornelius has a vision of an angel telling him, go find Peter, he has a message for you. Verse 15 as I began to speak, and if you look at the story, the story is told twice in Acts, and, and one of the ways the, the authors in, in Scripture will tell you this is an important story is by writing a lot about it. And the story is told twice in a row, and that's because it's a very important story. It's the first time we see the gospel going to the Gentiles. If you read the story in the, in the passage before this, in the chapter before this, as soon as Peter shared the whole gospel, and it says here, as soon as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. In other words, they started speaking in tons, a miraculous gift that couldn't be denied at all. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptizes with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. You know, we get all mixed up with these passages. I want you to see Peter's interpretation of what happens here. Look at verse 17. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, that's the Holy Spirit, who was I that I could um, stand in God's way? In other words, who was I to say Gentiles couldn't be saved? Right? It's obvious that the Holy Spirit is on them because they're doing obvious miracles. Who am I to say that they couldn't be saved? When they, that's the other apostles and, and the disciples and Jewish Christians, when they heard these things, they, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Listen, the first half of the book of Acts God is just slowly revealing to the apostles that he meant what he said when he said to the church, take the gospels to the ends of the earth. Take the gospel to the nations. Take the gospel to Gentiles. Now turn back to Ephesians 3 verse 5. Ephesians 3 verse 5. Mystery, which, which was not made known to the sons of men in, in other generations, that's the Old Testament, as it has now been revealed to, to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Right? God slowly revealed to them the mystery. And what is the mystery? Verse 6. The mystery is that 
the Gentiles are fellow heirs and members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Through the gospel. That's the summary of Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. It's what God showed the apostles in the first half of the book of Acts. God slowly showed them that Gentiles and Jews are one in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That the church is one. If you've put your faith in Christ and and you've trusted in the good news, we are one. You know, I want you to think about this. We're about to take communion this morning. In the Old Testament, Jews were not allowed to eat with Gentiles. That's why they were so upset with Peter that he ate with a Gentile. So much so that they just ignored that the gospel went to the Gentiles. You weren't allowed to eat with the Gentiles. Because God made all these laws that made it impossible to eat with a Gentile. All these different foods you couldn't eat. In the Old Testament, there was a separation. right? These laws that kept Israel separate from the Gentiles. The temple was divided. There's dividing walls that separated Jews from Gentiles, that separated men from women. But in the New Testament, there is neither Jew nor Greek, and that's Gentile. There's neither Jew nor Gentile. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Galatians 3, 28. We, we are one. Our identity is the same. Sinners saved by grace. And that's why Paul spends so much time in the beginning of the letter of Ephesus and Ephesians, especially 1 through 10, saying we were dead and God made us alive. That's all of our identities. We are one. And I want you to think about this because, because in the New Testament, we do communion, we do the Lord's Supper, and there is no hierarchy in the, in the Lord's Supper. We all come to the table as equals, as a family of God as a new man, as a, as a fellow heirs, as members of the same body, as partakers of the promise. And this is all because we are in Christ through the gospel. We're all sinners saved by grace. That's a shared identity that we have together. I want to show you something that I just think is amazing, and we're going to get to this next week, but I'm just excited. So I'm going to jump ahead. Look at Ephesians 3.10. I, just, I don't even know what to do with this verse. I'm excited to study it more in-depthly. So that through the church, I told you in seminary, when I studied scripture, one of the things that just, I just, I, I, I didn't know, I guess, I don't know. It, one of the things that just jumped out at me as I went through the New Testament, even the Old Testament, and studied scripture is how important the church is. And our, our culture, Christian culture even, we neglect the church. We don't think we need the church. Listen to what this is. Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. I don't even know what to do with that. The diversity and unity of the church. Diversity meaning, meaning our diverse ages, our diverse heritages, our diverse ethnicities, right? our diverse personalities, our diverse giftings. All unified, we are one. One body displays God's wisdom to the heavenly beings on on a cosmic scale. Us. That's crazy. The diverse unity 
of the church really reflects who God is, who himself is a diverse unity. Diverse in, in persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who have different roles and different authorities. Yet one in essence, one God. We reflect God. It's amazing to me. And we're going to come together right now as one body displaying that wisdom, reflecting the glory of God as we come together as one and take the Lord's Supper this morning. I want to take some time. Take some time to reflect. If there's some sins that you need to ask for forgiveness to and repent. Listen, if you're not, a, if you're not saved this morning, you're not a part of this. I just want to be clear on that. I would encourage you not to take the, the elements as they go by, and, and no one's going to judge you for that. Listen, put your faith in Christ. He came and lived a perfect life, died on the cross for, for your sins, and he's offering you grace this morning. Put your faith in him. If you have questions about that, I'd love to talk with you this morning. But for us that, that are a part of this, this body who are truly saved, just think about how amazing it is that we are one in Christ. Ask for forgiveness of your sins, and I just pray that this is a joy-filled time as we rejoice that Christ died on the cross for our sins.